Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Welcome to the New Books Network. The COVID-19 pandemic is changing how we think about care. Care work has long been devalued. The daily labors of sustaining the well-being of individuals and community members were seen as natural duties belonging to women and did not receive recognition as labor. However, with the COVID-19 crisis, the popular media is increasingly valorizing care workers as essential workers because of the growing need for care from our vulnerable population. However, valorization does not mean improvement in working conditions nor policy changes. The question remains whether we as society are ensuring care for both workers and recipients of state-funded domestic personal support who are also marginalized from society because of their age, disability, class, and race. Home Care Fault Line makes a timely intervention. The scholarship on care work focuses either on workers, recipients, policies, or private sectors. In her important sociological investigation, Professor Cynthia Cranford from University of Toronto examines both the workers' and recipients' perspectives through in-depth interviews with over 300 people in Canada and the U.S. to understand how we can improve the worker security with recipients' flexibility, which is often seen in opposition from one another at levels of labor process, labor market, and state. At New Books and Gender Studies, our podcast channel in the New Books Network, we're pleased to have Professor Cynthia Cranford talk, to talk about her new book, Home Care Fault Lines. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, same as well. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to write Home Care Fault Line? Sure. Thank you for that question. It's a great place to start. And I want to start somewhere um, a little bit further back than you might expect. Um, So I was born in the early 70s and grew up in Fontana, which is a working class town in Southern California. My dad was part of what labor scholars have called the labor aristocracy because he had a unionized job that provided good wages, extensive family benefits and considerable job security for high school educated men like him. 
I greatly benefited from this labor market security as well as from white privilege. Um, At the same time, however, my parents divorced when I was still in elementary school and I watched my mom struggle to take care of me and my brother and do low-wage care work as a teacher's assistant. Um, Now, obviously, as an elementary school child, I was not planning uh, to write home care fault lines, but I know that this upbringing really shaped a feminist lens on work and labor, even um, much sort of earlier than entering university as an undergraduate. Um, But as an undergraduate student in sociology at the University of California, Riverside, uh, I was learning about structural explanations for growing inequality since the early 70s, like this shift from well-paid manufacturing jobs um, to insecure service work, how they were gendered, Um, And these sort of theoretical explanations for what we talked about as um, global economic restructuring and how they were gendered, they made sense to me, right? They fit with my biography and and my where I grew up and what I had seen in my family. So in graduate school, where I I did a PhD in sociology at um, University of Southern California, I really specialized in the analysis of economic restructuring and how it Uh, intertwined with gender and migration. Uh, So my dissertation project was initially going to be about immigrant workers and the LA garment industry. Um, But while I was writing my proposal, uh, the janitors at USC um, were contracted out, the university janitors, the ones who cleaned um, at the university and also the food service workers. Uh, And the union, uh, which was SEIU, but also the, the there was another union, which was HERE, reached out to students um, as allies because the university had, sort of, for example, put restraining orders against the workers and how many of them could congregate. So we formed actually a student group when I was a grad student, which we, I'm thinking back on it with a smile, we called it SCALE, Student Coalition Against Labor Exploitation. And um, it included grad students from sociology, geography, history, classics, other departments. Um, and through this experience and these networks, as the, the union organizers um, became my friends, I became more interested not just in economic restructuring, but resistance. Like how can workers, um, especially immigrant women workers, organize collectively? Right. So I switched my dissertation topic to a gendered analysis of the Justice for Janitors movement in Los Angeles, which was a campaign um, of the Service Employers uh, International Union, SEIU, to organize mostly Latinx immigrant workers. Um, and it was emblematic, this movement of the innovative L.A. labor movement in the late 80s and 90s. So with this background as a graduate student, both sort of and, you know, my my early biography and my family um, sort of background with this uh, background, I came to the study of home care as a study of gendered and racialized economic restructuring. Uh, And so the research that became home care fault lines uh, was really uh, interested in the complex employment relations that differ from those in uh, the large. Uh, As a graduate student at USC, we formed a student group, which we called SCALE, Student Coalition Against Labor Exploitation. And this included graduate students from sociology, geography, history, classics, and other departments. 
And sort of given this sort of student activism uh, that was going on the same time that I was reading, you know, academic work about restructuring, I became more interested in organized resistance um, to the racialized and gendered restructuring, right? And so I switched my topic uh, of my dissertation to a gendered analysis of the Justice for Janitors movement in Los Angeles. This was a campaign of the, the SEIU, Service Employers International Union, to organize uh, mostly Latinx immigrant workers. And this case study was really emblematic uh, of the innovative L.A. labor movement in the late 80s and 1990s, which was really focusing on organizing uh, the most precarious uh, immigrant workers. Um, so much later now, just with this background, just skipping forward to the study of um, home care, which became home care fault lines, I really approached home care as a case study of gendered and racialized economic restructuring, um, but with a more sort of complex set of employment relations that differed um, greatly from the factory model, right? I mean, the janitorial case, all service sector work differs from the factory model, but care work added another layer of uh, differentiation um, that was really at odds with kind of our, our labor law and, and even our union organizing strategies, which is influenced by labor law, um, uh, that are based on sort of the factory model. Um, so in addition to this dissertation work on the L.A. janitorial industry, which was kind of the lens or the framework of this kind of restructuring framework that I brought to home care, um, I had also studied precarious employment that falls outside the factory model in temporary agency work. When I first arrived here in, in Canada, when I was a postdoctoral researcher at York University in Toronto. Um, and so the comparative analysis that became home care fault lines was also greatly influenced by scholarship on precarious employment in Canada and Europe, as well as new networks with academics and labor organizing um, through this community university research alliance that focused on precarious work. Um, uh, and so one of the case studies in the book, the direct funding case, started as part of this kind of postdoc research um, which was part of a broader community university uh, alliance. Um, so as an assistant professor of sociology at U of T, I returned to Los Angeles with a comparative eye. Um, think, you know, I had done some research on this direct funding case. And I began to expand also throughout my years as assistant professor to other cases of state-funded home-based labor in Toronto and going back to L.A. and doing more in-depth research um, I first interviewed key informants like labor activists, disability and senior advocates, employers, social workers, and they provided really important information about the history of home care and the parameters of the programs. And this is crucial to my analysis in the book, but I also wanted to know about how the workers and the receivers of home care themselves you know, navigated these parameters of the programs they were in and the labor market constraints. Uh, and the, the sort of state level policies in California and, the, and Ontario, which is the province that Toronto is housed in. Um, so it really turned into a, a multi-year large study with over 300 interviews, right? Um, and just I'll just say one more thing about this biography um, sort of part is that I think it's important. Uh, initially, I was intrigued by the social position of the home care receiver's 
vis-a-vis the home care workers. And I, I was interested in the home care receiver's role in the employment relationship. And that's why I included them in my study. Like I was a labor scholar, a labor gender migration scholar. I wasn't a disability scholar. I wasn't a, a, a sociology of aging scholar. And so I, I included them in my study because I wondered, you know, were these people receiving home care? Were they like employers? Um, were they like, uh, were they not legal employers, but they were essentially de facto employers? Or were they in some cases legal employers, but legal employers with little power? Um, were they more like welfare recipients? Uh, were they more like um, clients in, in a contracting relationship with the workers? And so that, and then what was the potential for these receivers to be allies with the workers? Um, allies to push the state, to push the public, um, you know, civil society and the public more broadly for um, more worker security. So were they allies? Were they in tension? And what was the role of unions in building these alliances? So, you know, I had studied in Justice for Janitors how they, you know, allied with the tenants of the buildings to organize the building cleaners, right? And so these were the kind of questions I was bringing and why I included the, the, the receivers in my study. But as I began to interview recipients, like any good qualitative uh, researcher, um, I, you know, your focus can shift a bit. And so it never shifted from an interest in, in the employment relationship, but I also became interested in the receiver's own relationship with the state, with the service providers, um, with the workers to pr- improve their quality of services. Um, so where Home Care Fault Line started as a study about gendered and racialized work and employment relationships, it ended up being um, a somewhat more balanced account of how the nexus of migration, class, and gender with disability and age could shape tensions, but also potential alliances between the workers and the, the receivers. So I think maybe I'll stop there with the, the background mm. question. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for starting with biography because, yeah, I think, as you said, it really illustrates the importance of uh, conducting a situated analysis. And uh, I also thought it was really refreshing how you were looking at both the recipients and, uh, you know, also like the workers' perspectives. And uh, this is included in the question that I'm going to ask later, but also about the importance of uh, embodied knowledge that we acknowledge in the uh, in the recipients that I think also showed the, uh, you know, labor aspect of, uh, you know, uh, of their relationship too, like la- labor that uh, comes both ways uh, that, yeah, I thought was super insightful. But uh, yeah, I uh, wanted to ask, I guess, before those questions that, you know, I have lined up, um, I actually lived in Toronto and also kind of in LA uh, for a bit despite the pandemic. Um, and yeah, I wanted to ask you about, um, so you talked about the importance of location, you know, you were a postdoc in um, Canada, um, but you know, you were mostly uh, in located in the States for your grad studies. Um how like despite uh, you know they're very different countries in, with different social welfare so I wanted to ask you how you you know negotiated these like differences and similarities when you were conducting your comparative analysis mm, that's a really great question um, so 
Home care fault lines is largely a comparison between four types of publicly funded home care programs situated in two distinct urban contexts, right? And I do focus on the urban labor markets of the greater Toronto area and, you know, LA County really, right? Um, but these urban, the, the because I am studying state-funded programs, these programs are provincial or state-run programs. And so they're, they're, they are nested in um, this kind of policy context. And of course, that um, in Canada, like in the U.S., even actually in Canada more so than the U.S., the provincial um, regulation um, at that level is, um, so for example, labor law at the provincial level is very distinct across provinces, right? And it's nested in a federal context, but it even has less um, sort of federal influence than in the U.S. So there, yes, there are all these sort of layers within uh, each of my case studies. But what I wanted to do, again, I didn't come at this as a kind of comparative um, social welfare scholar, but the case studies led me down that direction a little bit. And there's there's all of this policy information that I have in each case study as a kind of the context section. And a lot of it is in footnotes as well. Um, because what I wanted to do um, as a sociologist of work and labor and intersecting inequalities is take it down to kind of the program level. What are the program policies? And yes, then how are those programs nested in the policy context? But what, given the policy context, which I set out briefly, how do, say, the director of client services implement um, their programs? What are their um, expectations for the workers and receivers? Um, what if there is no employer, right? And so my comparison of the programs was largely kind of like, who is the legal employer? Is it the receiver um, themselves? Um uh, is it uh, a, a for-profit agency with profit interest, but that is contracted with the government, or is it a nonprofit, right? And so that was kind of my comparative analysis. But what I wanted to do was focus in depth on a few state-funded programs, um, uh, in part because the literature had focused a lot on private-paid programs, especially coming out of the U.S. and I was also really reading that literature and excited about that literature on domestic work. So I was kind of bringing frameworks from the study of uh, private paid domestic work to think about um, the public sector and how it differed or was similar. So there's there's also that kind of theoretical comparison in the book. And, and other people were doing this as well, right? Other people looking at home care, which is um, especially in Canada, publicly funded, but is because it's in the home, it's a very privatized and informalized, right? So it's kind of a, a hybrid space. Um, so in in uh, one of the things that I often say is I don't I don't call this a comparison between home care in Toronto and Los Angeles because I don't have the universe of all the home care programs in either city. Um, mm -hmm. I have more of it in Toronto, um, but in LA, for example, the program that I studied, the publicly funded program is only for very poor people, right? People who are on social, social security and the private market is the largest market, but, but we had, we have a lot of studies of that private market, right? And so 
so I, it, I, I theoretically um, picked the case studies to focus on publicly funded home care, but I also theoretically picked these case studies because of what was happening in the labor movement. And I've touched on a lot of that with the, the biography, but um, in the LA case, um, you know, the, the, the organizing of home care workers, again, by the Service Employees International Union was based on, you know, over 10 years of trying to build alliances with um, disability and senior movements that represented the service receivers, right? And I detail this in the book and, and others have written about it too. Um, and um, they actually passed sort of new legislation that made it possible for home care workers to unionize and bargain with the government over wages and benefits. Um, so I wanted to bring it in as an innovative case. Um, and I wanted to think about what about in Toronto where labor unions have more of a seat at the table vis-a-vis -vis the government. There's a different, uh, broader party structure. We have a social democratic party that um, sometimes wins sort of local um, elections and even provincial, and they're, they're, they can be in opposition in parliament. Um, they have more of a seat at the table, but you also have SEIU here. So um, I also started as a postdoc to see things. I, 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 um, I began to wonder why didn't SEIU ally with the disability movement in Toronto like they did in Los Angeles? Um, and I didn't see that in the direct funding case. Um, the SEIU represented workers in other kinds of programs where the workers already had the ability to unionize, um, but the employment relationship was still far from the kind of imagined factory model of labor law, which we have in Canada as well as the U.S., right? So I started to think, what kind of strategies did the SEIU use here, and how did other union strategies differ? Because there were other unions as well in these other cases, um, so I ended up, you know, one way to think about one of the key things about that, that um, influenced my choice of the case studies is that it, they varied on unions organizing strategy, right? So in direct funding, there was no union organizing. Um, in home care, SEIU um, focused on labor market security and a very competitive privatizing um, sort of system. And the third Toronto case study was attendant services where SEIU was present, but it wasn't the dominant union. Um, and instead, there was another union uh, that uh, really not only focused on labor market security, but really um, kind of a democratic grassroots unionism and did try to tackle some of the, the tensions in the home workplaces between workers and receivers that I, I didn't see in the other cases. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of more of the um, the reasons uh, why I selected the case studies. But it's more it that my comparisons kind of unfolded. And I actually I, I kind of wrote the book in this way, too, where I I present one case study, then I present a second one and I compare it back to that one. And then the third one and I compare it back to that one. And I I kind of did the research that way as well. I did these comparisons almost kind of one at a time and then aggregated them. Right. Um, and, and as you know, um, well, as may, the listeners might not all know, uh, is that I did these studies over uh, uh, many years. Right. 
and I did um, different stages to the studies. So I was always kind of going back and forth and deepening the comparative um, analysis. Um, I think also, you know, I just wanted to say one more thing here was um, uh, I wanted to, you know, I already mentioned that I was, you know, now after the postdoc, I got a job at University of Toronto and that that's where I still am now. And, and, uh, this gave me the opportunity to work with several amazing graduate students. And I just think that this is a really great place to give a shout out to the University of Toronto graduate student research assistants who really uh, helped me do many of the interviews and, and transcribe some of them, especially Ingrid Kitlas and Diana Miller and Valerie Damasco. So I, I just wanted to slip that in. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, so I wanted to talk more about, uh, you know, these specific uh, case studies that you conduct. Uh, so uh, focusing first on Ontario's direct funding program, um, you illustrate how the insufficient funding and no collective support ended up intensifying the workers' insecurity despite the efforts to ensure recipients' flexibility. Um, and I also really appreciated how you, you really enter into historicization as well. Like I thought it was wonderful how, you know, you enter into the details of the program and uh, your analysis, but, you know, uh, contextualize it within the history. So I was wondering whether you can tell the re- listeners about the history of uh, independent living movement that resulted in the direct funding program and, um, the problems you identified in terms of insecurity and how relational work between workers and recipients shows a way forward. Sure. Thank you for that question about the direct funding program. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to touch on each part of the um, three-prong question. That's great. Um, so the independent living movement is uh, a sector of the disability rights movement that really tried to redefine independence, to focus on decision-making, to focus on people with disabilities having control over their daily lives by making decisions over, um, you know, in part, their personal support, but but many other things as well, including whether they lived in an institution or are at home, Right. And so they kind of redefined independence to not just be, you know, doing everything for oneself, um, but to include kind of the decisions over how their daily activities like eating and bathing in one's own home um, would be um, would be supported. Um, And so this movement, so I just want to say a little bit about it before the history people might not be familiar, but. This movement um, started in Berkeley, California, um, where student disability activists influenced by the civil rights 
movement in the 60s and later the consumer rights movements, um, what one uh, disability advocate um, in, in Toronto, Lord, called radical consumerism in the U.S. context, um, they first organized these independent living centers in the early 70s to support disabled people living in the community. And it was really about rejecting institutional care that was um, uh, based on a kind of a medical model of cure. And if people couldn't be cured, that is, they had long-term disabilities, then they were kind of warehoused and segregated in institutions. So this was about um, providing the kind of supports that people would need to be members of the community. Um, and so in line with the kind of dominant social reform philosophies in the U.S. Um, and really strong values of individualism in the U.S. and self-reliance, um, this independent living movement really braced, like embraced the term um, consumer, right? And that's just, it kind of came out of, it was influenced by the civil rights movement, but also came out of this kind of consumer rights movement, Um and of course, you have mostly marketized care in the U.S., right? And so they wanted to reject the idea that they were these passive patients or clients, and, and, and they, they embraced the term consumer. Now, the U.S. movement influenced the Canadian independent living movement, um, but the Canadian movement emerged about 10 years later, um, in the 80s. And it, it also emerged after there was now a, an international disability movement. So it was the Canadian movement was shaped and also helped shape the, the, the more international um, disability and independent living movement. Um, and there were also some other differences between uh, the U.S. And, independent, and, and the Canadian independent living movement, according to disability scholars in Canada. Um, it, whereas in the U.S., the movement really drew on anti-state ideas um, and really focused on self-reliance, um, not just as individuals. There was a whole peer support dimension of it through these independent living centers, but, but still very much anti-state, right? Um, in Canada, where there is, um, you know, a, a more developed welfare state, although it's still uh, underfunded, I want to emphasize, and, and nowhere close to, say, what we have in the social democratic countries like Sweden or um, so, but, but still there was, there's not this kind of history of anti-state, you know, organizing. And there, and there also wasn't this kind of the same kind of social reform philosophy as in the U.S. So here, um, the but then it was also influenced by by that. Um, and so here the movement more focused on the ability of people to make decisions in government funded services. So it both was pushing for government funded services, but then how those services were designed to allow people to have more say over over decisions of the care. Right. Um the movement um, worked more with government to develop programs that reflected independent living principles. And the direct funding program is a, is a, you know, a great example of that. Um, so it began in Ontario in the early 90s as a pilot. And the pilot was um, the government allocated funding to the Center for Independent Living in Toronto. So this is an independent living center similar to the ones that had been established in, in the U.S., starting in Berkeley and then moving across um, across the country. Um, 
And so the government is working with the Center for Independent Living um, to to pilot this program. And in the late 90s, um, they they turned it into a from a pilot to a program. And the Center for Independent Living then is both um, kind of the transfer funding agency and an advocacy kind of group that has peer support um, in, in many aspects for people with disabilities. It's seen uh, and operates as um, an organization by and for people with disabilities firstly, but it's also now in this kind of relationship uh, with the government. Um, so that's kind of a, a key difference in some of the histories there. Um, you know, unfortunately, politicians were not only interested in direct funding as a way to provide, you know, more um, choice, control, flexibility to disabled people, but also as a way to contain home care costs, um, as as was the case also in the U.S. and elsewhere. And this is where the insecurity comes in. So getting to the second part of your question, right? Um and, you know, in the book, I give some examples of some of the ways that these independent living advocates tried to build in labor protections for workers. Uh, and there were some some successes there within the parameters of um, what the government was willing to do. Um, but one of the crucial sort of missing ingredients that I focus on in the book was the um, the lack of the ability of workers to have any kind of collective uh, representation. Um, And so they couldn't collectively push for better conditions or the enforcement of the conditions that kind of the the independent living direct funding advocates were trying to get on the books that, you know, we all know that conditions need to also be enforced. um, And, I would argue, and many others would argue, ultimately by the workers through through, through their collectivities, right? Um, and even so, as a result, even the protections on the books were not always enforced. And so, by actually interviewing um, both receivers of the direct funding and the workers, we get beyond the policy on the books, which you know it, you know sets out, for example, the funding of the self manager has a minimum. Uh, is based on, you know, paying a minimum kind of wage, but nobody really, a minimum wage that is above the general minimum wage, right? A minimum wage for the program, which has increased over time. So that's really great if you're to look at the program on the books, but then the self-manager, which the, the receivers are called in this program, is the hiring and firing employer and the employer for any purpose and and can decide the wage, right? And and that's not really enforced, right? And so where does that enforcement piece come in? And I'm not trying to say that all, you know, self-managers will somehow want to pay the lowest wage. In fact, um, that's often not the case because they know they need to keep multiple workers in order to um, go about their daily lives, right? And so, but, but um, so one of the pieces that comes in about insecurity is that, um, the receivers uh, in this program are mostly younger people with disabilities. They're not older people. And most of them are unique in that they, um, they became disabled later in life and they had uh, a professional job beforehand. They have higher education than the average uh, disabled person, right? Um, and uh, more, more labor market experience. 
And so a lot of them are, are continuing these professional jobs. And so they often need very intermittent help, say in the morning, a, a lawyer needs help getting ready to go out to work, maybe somebody at the workplace, somebody in the evening. And so many of them have multiple workers, right? They have a staff of workers. And so for each worker, it's a very intermittent job. So even if the hourly wage is high, you just don't have enough hours, right? And so one of the things that, um, you know, the LA case shows us and other literature shows us that um, some unions, as has been the case historically and in unions actually like my dad's union, you know, the electrical and construction workers, is that some unions get involved in also helping to provide work, like the hiring hall, right? Um, and the SCIU in Los Angeles, um, part of that alliance with the disability movement included a registry where people could find workers and workers could find jobs. Now, nobody had to use the registry, um, but it was there and it was part of the program and it was funded and supported with staff, et cetera. Um, and the union um, also had its own kind of registry. Um, so if workers couldn't get jobs through the program registry, this is L.A., they could get jobs through the union uh, registry. So workers need to have multiple jobs to piece together a living and they need to have mechanisms to find jobs when relationships end, either they, they could end because somebody dies, they could end because somebody goes into an institution, they could also end because they're fired, right? Or they quit because of conditions, right? Um, and so what I was looking at in direct funding was, you know, does the Center for Independent Living have a registry? They have a very small one, but it's very underfunded and not very many people use it. Um, and there's no union um, to enforce the conditions, but also to think about what are the new ways that unions or other kinds of workers organizations can help to provide labor market security through multiple well-paid jobs, right? Given that we, we're not going to necessarily in care work have everything be a full-time 40-hour-a-week uh, job, right? So, so that's kind of a couple aspects of the labor market insecurity. And I want to just emphasize that one of my key points is that the because here um, the workers were the employees of the self-manager, and yet there was no union um, who, who allied with the independent living movement to come up with a new model of legislation, as happened in Los Angeles, to, to figure out a way that these workers could unionize. There was no, no alliance there. Um, and just stepping back a minute, part of that is on, is on labor because labor was very critical of the direct funding program when it was you know, being talked about as a potential and during the pilot. So a lot of this, this is even more history than is in the book or it's in an earlier chapter, it may be in some footnotes, but, um, they saw this as a threat to to unionized services in other programs and in, in uh, long-term residential care. So they were very critical. So whereas SEIU in Los Angeles kind of was doing innovative things and ally and thinking about how to organize home-based workers, they made some some concessions, which we can talk about. Uh, you know, many labor scholars are critical of them, but here there was no attempt to kind of think outside the box and organize direct funding 
workers. So that's another reason why it's not just all on the independent living movement and their philosophy and history or their relationship with the state. It's also labor. And this is a a broader point in the book, right? Um, That we need to also look at what labor does within the context in which it's operating, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think I really resonate with, um, yeah, I think one of your points throughout the book is that, uh, you know, policy change is great, but then it's really limiting in a sense that, yeah, we have to, like, pay attention to, like, you know, the relational work as well as, um, you know, the unions, um, there are all these processes, uh, it, and it's not just a macro process that matters, right? Yeah, and yeah, and I think um, this really speaks nicely to uh, the questions that I had about, uh, you know, the LA, the case study in LA with in-home support services and how uh, with them, you know, they uh, they encourage like ethnic community relations, which help to mediate the tension between worker security and recipients of flexibility, um, as well as um, also bringing in like Toronto home care programs and uh, how you uh, problematize um, the SEIU's like involvement there uh, with the with the lasting effect of business unionism. So I think that you know these models again like illustrate like complexities and uh, you know shows insights into the problems, but also potential mm-hmm. solutions. Mm-hmm. Did you want me to talk uh, a little bit about the relational work in, yeah. um, in direct funding mm-hmm. and in L.A.? Yeah, yeah, as well as about the role mm-hmm. of ethnicity. Uh, that would be really sure. great. Yeah. yeah. So um, the other sort of level of analysis, as you've, um, you've talked about, is this kind of intimate labor process level. And care work is um, different from factory work in that it's a relationship. Right. And so I use this concept of relational work uh, to talk about um, the work that not only the workers do, but also the receivers do to navigate tensions at the intimate level and like including the level of the body. Right. Um, And my own knowledge of my body, um, not my own knowledge. uh, We all have knowledge of our body, but people who have long term disabilities develop um, a a knowledge of their body and how it works and what kind of support they need. How do they negotiate that with, um, with the worker and knowing that the worker has, has skill as well. And how are those skills developed to be understanding of multiple diverse bodies, given that these workers are working with multiple people? Um, And so, uh, and then, and then another tension that I talk about is, the tension between time and task, and and I this is a tension between um, the receivers needing um, to have help with various things in different times, um, versus the workers often wanting to know what their tasks are because we know that home based work can often easily slip into servitude, whatever, whenever, um, especially when the workers are um, are women of color. And there's a history and there's a contemporary um, multiple examples of that all over the care work literature. So that was one of the things that I wanted to to touch on and look at how does it vary or does it vary um, when, say, the the worker is a a worker of color and the the receiver 
is white um, or in sort of co-ethnic care, right? Or even in the direct funding, I also have situations where the worker is white and the um, employer is also white. So what is the kind of relational work that is done in, in these different kind of contexts, right? And so you've got the policy context, but you also have the people and the histories that they bring with them. sometimes their individual histories where um, somebody was came to Canada as a domestic worker and home care for them is a step up. So when they're handed a mop and a bucket, they they react as 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 many would, but they react in a specific way that I'm not the maid. I am a care worker, right? But so sometimes it's an individual, but often it's also for for workers of color, um, for Filipino workers. As I talk about in the LA case, but in Toronto we have workers Filipinos as well, but uh, Filipinas as well, but also um, women from. Caribbean and different countries who have collective histories of domestic worker migration. Um, and even if it wasn't their work history, it, it could be their auntie or their mother or their sister, right? And so these kinds of um, broader kind of labor market inequalities are brought into the intimate relationship and workers and the receivers have to navigate them, right? And the the receive so just going back to kind of that um, that level with with the direct funding uh, program, um, the direct funding um, receivers actually work quite hard to try to balance. That's let's just talk about the knowledge versus skill tension to um, kind of actually put into practice the kind of um, control that, that they want because they don't just want to hi- fire people and hire someone else. That takes a lot of work. Uh, it's hard to find good workers. It's hard to get them used to your routine. It's uncomfortable for you to, to expose yourself and your intimate um, you know, life to someone new. So they actually um, were quite open to suggestions of workers Uh, Most hired multiple workers, as I said, and they did relational work to negotiate the physical and emotional skills of different workers, right? Um, But then, you know, um, and and many of the direct funding workers also that we interviewed felt that the self-manager they worked for listened to them and valued their skill and took it into consideration. And if they had that good relationship, they were willing also to do relational work to smooth over you know, the, the picky request or, or, or an irritable comment because they, they described it as kind of, I'm a friend, I listen, and, and they listen to me too, right? Um, but what I, the analysis that I develop in the direct funding is to try to look at, um, you know, the, the, the white women and even some white men who had more labor market choice to give up a direct funding client were the ones who, you know, they were the ones who stayed in the relationship and I could therefore find them to interview at the time. Right. Um, And they, most of them had other jobs um, like a a, a part-time permanent or maybe even a full-time permanent job in, in a more stable care sector and then they had this as kind of an, an extra, and sometimes they just kept it as extra money, right? And and a lot of the the men who worked in the sector 
you know, they were young university students. They didn't see this as something they would be in for a long period of time. But when we when we interviewed workers who were immigrant um, women of color that had very few options in the labor market and really kind of depended on this direct funding work, it, it was harder for them to just quit, right? And so they talked about tensions. They talked about, you know, their skill not being recognized, them not being consulted. Um, and so what I what I argue in that um, chapter is that, you know, there's this, we need to look at relational work because we need to get under the policy, you know, prescriptions and see how people work with the systems that they're given. And we need to understand that given the reality of the labor market, that, that these receivers will do quite a lot of work. But we also need to show that this potential can be undermined by the broader labor market uh, insecurity. And so I, I kind of make that point most forcefully in the direct funding, but just going into the um, IHSS case and just thinking a little bit about the role of uh, ethnicity is that, you know, my argument in the chapter is that, um, you know, ethnic, so, so just stepping back a little bit for your listeners um, that, you know, in the book, I talk about how in, in IHSS, this is a program that is for poor people. So people of color are overrepresented, including immigrants, providing their residents of California and have legal status. Um, they can they can receive these services and providing they need help with activities of daily living. Um, and they're they're overrepresented, and they um, and people can also hire family members, right? So this is a case study. Um, that I have sort of a case study within a case study here, and I focus on the Filipinx community. And um, but I want to make the point that even in, you know in the Chinese community, in the Korean community, um, in other communities of, of of immigrants, they are often hiring family or if not family, co-ethnics. So this is kind of one example of that. And so in the chapter, I, I sort of. Um, I argue that ethnic community relations can be a mechanism for the state to download, you know, the responsibility of care to the ethnic community, because even though they're paying um, these family members to help their family members, they're paying them much less. They still a lot of unpaid work, right? They're paying the family members, giving them fewer hours, for example, if you're a family member, especially if you're a close family member, like you're a daughter or daughter-in-law. Um you will get fewer hours um, because the idea is part of that is your gendered duty. And, um, you know, ethnicity sometimes reinforces that that's the gendered duty. But also um, immigrant workers are saying here in America, for example, you know, we need uh, we need to pay rent. We need that bills are very high um, and we need this kind of state payment in order to kind of sustain our filial duty. So it's, I try to give a nuanced account in the chapter of how ethnic community relations on the one hand, I mean, most of the workers who are providing services to family members were already doing it without pay beforehand, right? Um, so would they keep doing it? Yes, but would people also be really pulled thin and would families be unable to bring in additional income? Also, yes, right? Um, so the state can, it, there's a danger in romanticizing ethnicity, which is not what you're doing or most of your listeners are, would I would assume would be doing. 
But I just want to kind of say that there's that danger. So I try to walk this line between ethnicity being potentially um, a, an important resource for unions, right? For unions to um, get into the ethnic networks and support um, and support them, right? And um, organize through them and support community-based uh, organizing as well, right? Uh, and so just briefly in the IHSS uh, program, you know, one of the things that I find is that um, IHSS receivers and workers, whether they're family or co-ethnics, they use the kind of familial ideals and practices. You know, I treat her like a mother. Um, this is what I would do for my family to kind of smooth over some of the tensions um, that I talked about in the other chapter. But there are still tensions, right? And some of that was difficult to get workers to talk about, but but workers did talk about them. Um, and there there were even examples of, um, you know, the care work slipping into relations of servitude, even even with family, right? And so one of the things, again, just going then back to the union, is that. Um, Alliances between IHSS receivers and workers were key to SEIU's strategy and ability to organize the sector. And this chapter shows that family and ethnic ties can really support that alliances. Um, but it also shows that um, if there's not a deep engagement with the union of the workers, then the, the, the communities, the receivers are also not going to be um, on board um, and that could undermine this kind of potential uh, of alliances. Um, so uh, again, my analysis tries to distinguish between the labor market and intimate labor process. So um, the IHSS receivers um, that we interviewed in the Filipina community supported the union um, because of its efforts to increase labor market security through better wages and benefits, if the worker did, right? Um, and this was especially true for those who hired family, but also those who hired um, co-ethnic, other Filipinos who were not family. Um, but if the worker did not support the union, then the receiver did not either, right? So there's a real kind of multiplier effect, right? To kind of organize in the community, first through this kind of worker family member dyad or worker co-ethnic dyad, but then extending into the community. Um, and so my case study talks about this, you know, innovative L.A. case, but also the downside of that um, after the legislation was passed and the workers were unionized. You know, the union is is still fairly top down and wasn't effectively reaching the Filipinx community. Um, it didn't know how many Filipinx workers were out there. It would send them materials in Spanish because they had. Um, last names, many, many Filipinos have last names that sound like Spanish last names. There was sort of one organizer that covered both home care and long-term care. And so given this reality, some of the workers would say, oh, we don't need the union. We don't want to pay the dues. What do they do for us? They send me things in Spanish. I don't even know who they are. And if that was the case, the receiver would also echo that, right? Um and so I try to explore in the chapter how ethnic organizations might be another avenue to bring workers and receivers together um, to bring to provide this labor market security um, in this highly flexible program. 
Um, and several of those we interviewed did participate in efforts with the Philippinex community groups that they were part of, um, community groups focusing on other things like um, like voting and citizenship um, or elder care issues. Um, and sometimes these community groups would get involved in trying to protect the IHSS program from cutbacks, which every budget, there's, there's the threat of cutbacks. And that, that is also what the union was doing. And pe- some people had gone to the state capital, Sacramento, to push for these. And this really shows the importance of the union allying with these kinds of organizations, right, that, that have more of a connection with the community. Um, but at the intimate level, these tensions over, you know, when does care work slip into servitude and, and can this even be something is this a kind of a taboo subject within the community? When and where can this be discussed? Um, few workers thought that the union was a place that could address these intimate tensions, especially if they were working with family. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, as part of the early alliance between the union and independent living movement, there was an agreement to focus on what I, I have been calling labor market security. That is, you know, wages and benefits uh, negotiated with the government, right? And to not get involved in the daily relations in the home workplaces. Leave that to the receiver who is the employer in that realm and, and should determine how, you know, their care is provided along the lines of the independent living philosophy, right? But how do we then balance these these tensions is what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. So what I end up suggesting in that chapter is that um, maybe Filipinx community organizations, you know, are, are going to be important here for d- supporting workers in the labor process. And some of the community, Filipina community organizers that I talked to, you know, talked about how they talk with the receivers about how to treat your workers, how to respect your workers, um, and would address these tensions in the daily labor process, these kinds of what I call knowledge versus skill and time versus task. And then they really focus more on the time versus task tension, which is when kind of care work can really slip into sometimes servitude, right? It's all around whatever I need, whenever I need it. And that's kind of the way I'm starting to think about it. And also in some of my collaborative work with Jennifer Chan is is that there's always seems this potential for care work to slip into servitude. And what what are the levers that kind of prevent that? And how can we really recognize that potential so that um, we can sort of address it and talk about it and organize around it, right? And so I suggest, based on this case, that, you know, maybe immigrant community organizations are key to supporting workers in the labor process. And there's some examples of community organizers talking to some of the recipients about how to treat your worker, you know, how to, and also talking to the workers about how to understand what the receiver is going through. So these kinds of negotiations are really important, but they can't just take place at the individual level as they do in direct funding, um, if they could be bolstered and supported by community organizations and, and labor as well, then, then, then wow, like it, the real potential, yeah. we could see real potential there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for elaborating on that. And uh, I think that 
route that really segues nicely to the question that I had about uh, your proposal of um, the solution in the final chapter, where mm-hmm. you create a really important framework, I think, about, uh, you know, thinking about alliances, as you were saying, you know, with the, so not trying to romanticize the uh, ethnic relations, but then thinking about, you know, its potential in, you know, bringing communities and unions uh, all together uh, in building flexible and secure care work through intimate community unionism. Uh, can you tell us more about your proposal or your proposed model of universal social funding and worker recipient run and state funded intermediaries to mediate tension in labor market and intimate processes? Sure. Thank you for that. So, um, yeah, in the conclusion of the book, I really try to chart the potential for flexibility with security through a comparative analysis of my cases and in dialogue with other studies and some on-the-ground practices. Um, So in order to reflect the unique realities of this work, I argue that we need an intimate community unionism. And so intimate community unionism would entail democratic alliances between labor and groups of elderly and disabled people, Um, to address these tensions in the labor process that I've been talking about, but also more structural fault lines at the labor market and the state levels. So I'll say a little bit about the concept and where it comes from, and then these kind of three kind of prongs that I, 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 um, I put forward as part of this intimate community unionism. So the concept um, really builds on ideas formulated in dialogue with many people, um, but especially Dina Ladd, Mary Galatly, Leah Bosco, and Tanya Dasgupta. Um, and this came out of our work together based on an earlier ethnography and organizing with a worker center here in Toronto called the Workers Action Center. And it focuses on, on temporary and precarious uh, workers. Um, so we we talked a lot about, you know, what is community unionism? We tried to, to think about community unionism as it was talked about in the literature and as it could apply uh, to workers uh, centers and precarious workers. But here I talk about an intimate community unionism that extends this work to the case of home care because intimate labor is different from other kinds of labor. And so I draw on scholarship on uh, the service sector and care worker organizing, um, especially the work of Dorothy Sue Cobble. And Dorothy uh, Cobble talks about uh, the need for more intimate unionism, um, by which she means, you know, that the, the industrial, you know, factory-based models need to take into consideration kind of service work and care work relationships, this kind of relational work that we mentioned earlier. Um, and this idea of intimate community unionism is also in dialogue with some on-the-ground practices by domestic workers organizations. So, you know, I talk more in the concluding chapter about, about where this concept comes from, but just briefly, there are kind of three prongs to the intimate community unionism that I argue based on my case studies and these other on-the-ground practices um, would be effective for if if our goal is really flexibility with security, is to understand that this kind of work requires flexibility, but we also need security. Um, so the first prong is, is um, that we need democratic coalitions between labor and client groups to push for universal social funding model. So many here have talked about the need for universal funding of, of home care and other personal support. So it's not best based on the ability to pay as it is in the U.S. 
it's not being um, slowly privatized as one of my case studies we didn't talk about too much, the Toronto home care where, you know, they used to cover cleaning and now they just cover, you know, basic body care and they cut down to kind of a bath a week, right? It's being um, being um, cut back and privatized. So it needs to be universal based on need, not based on income. And it needs to be social, right? It needs to be a social funding model, not a medical model, not, you know, I'm going to come in and, and give you a bath a week so that you don't have any health issues from your long-term aging or your disability, as opposed to, you know, maybe somebody who's older does need help with housework and we should also fund that, right? Um, so I draw on lessons I learned from my comparison of these medical and independent living models um, where I found, and we didn't talk about this much, so I'll slip it in here. Um, I found that the tensions were the most extreme in the medical model, this Toronto home care, because of its narrow definition of care that really excluded a lot of the activities of daily living that that people with disabilities and, and older people need. Um, so I argue not just for universal funding and more funding, but, you know, an expanded vision of what should be funded, right? It should cover a broad array of daily physical activities. It should cover housework. Most of the tensions that I, I found were in this medical model, and they were over the time versus task and the how much is how is cleaning part of the job, right? And most of that was because cleaning had been defined out of the job and they weren't being paid for it. So it was invisible work. And then the most invisible work is this emotional work, the relational work that I talked about, um, that, that we also need to have enough funded hours to allow the time for that, because my, my studies show that it's important. So that's really like the first prong is about this universal social funding model. Um, so we need, um, in order to get there, how do we get there? We need the coalitions between labor and groups of um, rep various groups representing various kinds of receivers, right? That, that vary. I mean, elderly Filipinx and compared to younger um, people with disabilities are, are who are mostly white. Are those are different groups and they have different, um, slightly different interests, but they all are sort of interested in um, universal social funding. Um, and so the second prong gets even more into the kind of differences between the different groups of people who need home-based care. And, and that's what I talk about, culturally sensitive state-funded labor market intermediaries. And what I mean by labor market intermediaries is I mean these registries that I mentioned briefly before or that connect workers to jobs and people to workers, Right. But they don't that if we don't have state funded, they will be temp in industries that come and, 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 and make a profit off of um, connecting people or that it will be apps. Right. The gig economy is, is, is also growing in this sector. Right. And so we need them to be um, nonprofit. And we need state funding because I, I showed in, in L.A. where the state funded it, it was working uh, and in, in direct funding. Um, where the state um, didn't allocate enough funding to uh, operate a registry, it wasn't working, right? Um, but they also need to be culturally sensitive. And here I'm talking about um, registries in the language that, that elderly immigrants can understand, for example. Um, but I'm also talking about registries 
um, that understand, say, the independent living movement versus different kinds of concerns that um, older people might have. Older people might not want to be the employer. Some of them might, some of them might not, but it doesn't come out of a history and politics of the independent living movement that we were talking about, right? Um, so, um, yeah, so just, just skipping ahead again, effective labor market intermediaries, uh, they need to have input from collectivities of home care receivers and workers if they're going to meet the needs of these diverse groups of people. So they shouldn't just be run top down by the state, right? They should actually have representation and not just from the workers, but also from the receivers, right? And partly was happening in LA and it could effectively more, more, it could be more effective in LA and it could be generalized to other cases. Um, and so I, I just want to emphasize that these intermediaries don't need to replace paid care by family and friends. Did I cut out? Okay. Um, okay, great. Um, but they could support it, right? Allowing family and friends to have real choice in providing care. So, you know, if you have a choice to get out of a difficult relationship because you can find other jobs through a registry um, that doesn't have a huge markup and is not a for-profit entity, right? Um, then you can get out of difficult relationships or you can, you can have multiple jobs to supplement the meager hours that you would just have from one or a couple people, right? Um, so then, then labor market intermediaries are key. They're the, they're the second piece. But if we are to ensure that these tensions at this intimate level aren't just displaced to the labor market through firing and quitting, right? We, we really need a third piece. Uh, and this is where I really want to emphasize that in-home personal support includes tensions. We need to recognize that some stem from the funding model. Of course, there's not enough funding and the funding is too narrow. Um, some stem from the organization of the labor market and the, the reality that people need multiple jobs and they're hard to get. Um, but other tensions are not necessarily resolved just through better and broader funding and through these intermediaries. We also need to recognize tensions that come out of these different kind of social locations of workers and receivers in, in a, a matrix of inequalities as intersectional theory um, has, has taught us, right? And so people, as I mentioned briefly, are coming with biographies. Some receivers are coming with a history of being institutionalized as a child with a disability. Um, some older people fear going into nursing homes, right? And that they bring that with them. Um, workers, as I mentioned, uh, are, are on a long, especially migrant workers are part of, you know, a long-term individual and often community quest for security and respect, right? And so these kinds of democratic alliances between workers and service users somehow need to get at a way to negotiate these tensions at the labor process, to recognize them at least and talk about them and think about ways to negotiate them and and you know, we touched on the difficulty of some of the existing unions in doing this and the bureaucratic tendency I talk about even more in the in the book and um, of, of even the most innovative unions once they unionize and start to try to negotiate contracts. So in the conclusion, I point to some community-based labor organizing for inspiration, some of these worker centers, right? Um, 
the Workers Action Center, there's a Caregivers Action Center, Asian Immigrant Women Advocates in Oakland. And I look at how they're they're engaging in kind of leadership development of immigrant women workers, popular education, other me- methods that kind of grapple with these complex inequalities in in care work and how they can kind of bubble up in the in the intimate relation. So really, the, those are the three prongs: the universal social funding, the labor market intermediaries, but also some kind of mechanism that would allow workers and receivers with collective support to negotiate and have some kind of educational piece, some leadership development pieces, um, and that was democratic, um, uh, that that really sort of brought both sides to the table. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really, I try to draw on some of the most innovative um, work going on now, mostly in the domestic mm-hmm. workers movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you for elaborating on the proposed model with three prongs and also giving us like in-depth contextualization and how you're drawing from, you know, different ongoing scholarship as well as uh, inspirations from community organizations too. Yeah, your work was so rich in terms of like content, uh, that, that there were other things I wanted to cover, like, for example, you know, how you mentioned uh, the limitation of medical care. And then there was also, I also wanted to cover like attendance services. But then um, because of the time limitation, I guess the listeners just have to, you know, read the book uh, to find <laughs> out more. Yeah. Um, but there is the traditional final question with the New Books Network. And that is, uh, what is the ne- next project you're working on right now? Yes, thank you for that question. And um, uh, so a key thread of my current work now is to continue to think about the complex tensions within ethnic care economies, um, but also the potential for mediating them through collective organizing. And this is part of a, a comparative project focused on Asian immigrant women workers in IHSS that I have done with um, Professor Jennifer Chan at UCLA and also Professor Jennifer Nazareno at Brown University, as well as Dr. Young Suk Kim and Dr. Valerie Damasco and, and several students. And this research was done, we've, we've collected the data already, but we're writing a series of papers uh, as we speak and have written a couple of them already. And, and this research was done in partnership with um, a worker center called Asian Immigrant Women's Advocates, which is based in Oakland, California. Um, and we have three case studies. So one is the Philippinex case that I talked about that is in the book, but two others that are not in the book. Um, so one is Korean immigrant IHSS workers in Los Angeles, and the other is Chinese immigrant IHSS workers in Oakland. Um, and also Jennifer Naz, and I'm doing that work with Jennifer Chun, and then Jennifer Nazareno and I have also done research in partnership with the Filipino Workers Center in Los Angeles on the kind of private paid agency home care in Los Angeles. Um, and so we we have actually just written a paper that's going to be coming out in Gender and Society. Um, uh, yeah, and it's called Between Women of Color, the New Social Organization of Reproductive Labor. Um, so that's based on the kind of agency home care. Um, and then Jennifer Chan and I have also just finished a comparative analysis of the Korean and Chinese cases that I talked to you about. Um, with two of my Toronto cases. So now we're kind of bringing in a comparison of these new cases with the Toronto cases that are in the book. Um, And this is in a chapter that we've titled Dilemmas of Servitude in State-Funded Care, 
a multi-level intersectional framework. Um, and this is going to be uh, coming out in a, in a research handbook on intersectionality edited by Mary Romero and Rishwana Chapel. And so we're really excited about that. I just wanted to, to talk about my, my co-authors and my collaborators. Um, but well, I just want to emphasize that in each of these new cases, there's a different form of alliance between labor and immigrant communities, right? So we've already talked about the Philippines case, but in contrast to that case, which is in L.A., in the same union, um, Korean immigrant workers have developed their own leadership structure within the union. Uh, and this was the topic of Young Suk Kim's uh, dissertation and that Jennifer Chan and I are also working on. And this is um, allowing them to um, not only kind of share clients and share strategies, but also push the union for better representation for like a Korean speaking, you know, um, hotline and Korean language, you know, the, the contract interpreted into Korean and, and those kinds of things. Um, the Chinese IHSS workers in Oakland are less integrated into the union currently, although they have been in the past. Um, and, and they're mostly organizing uh, through this, um, through AWA, the organization that we partnered with, Asian Immigrant Women's Advocates, which is a longstanding uh, worker center in Oakland. Um, and then these agency workers in the kind of private paid agency, Filipinas, are also working through the Filipino Worker Center, which is a, a worker center, but they're per pursuing a cooperative as opposed to a union. So my colleagues and I are going to be developing, a, con continue to develop sort of this comparative analysis of different forms of alliances between immigrant communities and labor and the potential for sort of these kinds of alliances to challenge uh, the, the pervasive inequalities in home-based labor. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing. And I'm really excited to read the two upcoming articles uh, that are coming out. That sounds really important and relevant. And I also love that you're considering, uh, you know, like uh, differences as well in your analysis and how you mentioned like uh, the collaborators too. It's like really generous of you. Uh, yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm really excited for yeah the uh, to read upcoming works. And thank you for joining me today in this podcast. Thank you so much for these great questions and engaging uh, so deeply with, with my book. Uh, yeah, no, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.